Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. This includes animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation and, importantly, appreciation. The program is broadcast from the 3CR studios in Melbourne, Australia and streamed live via the 3CR website. Recent podcasts are available via the 3CR and Freedom of Species websites. All podcasts are also available via iTunes. Welcome to Freedom of Species. I'm Kate Gracie and on today's show we're going to be talking about some of the social and environmental impacts of livestock farming. I'll be sharing with you the wisdoms of Geoffrey Russell, Jared Wedderburn Bishop, Marco Springman and Michael Greger. But first up let's go to Geoffrey Russell. He's a candidate with the Animal Justice Party in South Australia's seat of Sturt. He's also the author of the book CSIRO Perfidy, which is about the irresponsible endorsement by the CSIRO of a meat-centric diet. Now, Jeff wrote two articles for the Brave New Climate blog a few years back called Boverty 1 and Boverty 2, Boverty meaning bovine-induced poverty. I found these articles to be absolutely fascinating, and so I got in touch with Jeff by Skype to ask him what are the impacts of livestock farming in Africa on poverty there? There's about a billion people on the continent of Africa and there's 310 million cattle and another 364 million goats. Now, if you look at somewhere like the US, the US has a similar ratio of cattle to people, but the US produces a vast amount of food. So in the US, you've got about 100 million cattle and 300 million people. The U.S. produces a vast amount of food. Africa has serious problems feeding not only its people, and most of the problems it has feeding its people is because it's also feeding this large amounts of animals. And that's a serious problem because those animals have all got to eat. They don't eat as much as a feedlot <laughs> feedlot cow in, in the U.S., but they, they do eat a substantial amount. Typically, they would also graze crop stubble. When they graze crop stubble, um, they degrade the productivity of the soil. They get topsoil, which is blown away as a result of increased erosion and increased damage to the soil. So it's a, it's a perfect recipe for losing carbon and losing productivity. And so the the, the animals in... Africa are um, a major problem, not just for Africa but also for the planet, but particularly for Africans. We know that much of sub-Saharan Africa is grassland or savanna, but you say this is not its natural state. Um, Yeah, there is a map that 
that, that was um, printed in that article, and that looks at the area that would reforest um, if you left it alone. <laughs> and it's a really large area of Africa. It's quite a large area. So a lot of the area has been degraded by um, livestock. Um, livestock people call it overgrazing. I just call it grazing. Um, but there's areas of degraded. They would reforest if they were left alone, but they're not left alone. And there are various cultural impediments to leaving them alone and historical impediments. If all you know how to do is run animals, then that's what you do. Farming is a far, farming plants is a far more sophisticated endeavour and a lot of people just don't know how to do it. And in some parts of Africa, it's considered low status to grow food. It is high status to have a lot of cattle. <laughs> so that you've got this continual cycle of um, lots of animals, degraded landscapes, but the landscape, but there's no way of avoiding it unless people actually learn to farm. Um, and there, are, I mean, there are some good projects going on in Africa where NGOs are actually te- teaching people how to grow food, usually women. Um, and this can work incredibly well. You've also got the Chinese at the moment buying up large areas of Africa, just like they're buying up large areas in a few places, and they don't have any trouble growing plenty of food because they know how to farm. A lot of Africans do not know how to farm because they're too used to running animals. Those animals don't actually produce much meat for them, but they still run them anyway. It's a status thing. Tell me about the role that that the burning of this grassland has on greenhouse gas emissions. It's very similar to what happens in Australia each year. The top end of Australia is satellite every year and that's satellite to stop forest regrowth and to um, improve grazing conditions. Vast amounts of savanna in northern Australia burned every year and it's exactly the same in Africa. You get a vast area of Africa that is satellite every year, and that's to prevent reforestation, make nice, fresh, green new shoots, and help the cattle grazing. Clears the land, helps the cattle graze, and it prevents reforestation. So when that land is burnt, in the greenhouse gas inventories, the carbon isn't actually counted because there will be regrowth in the following year, um, and that regrowth will roughly match whatever um, goes up into the air. It might match it in the first year, but eventually it will come back down again. What they do count in the greenhouse gas inventories is the methane. Because when you burn um, areas of vegetation, you, you get release of both methane and nitrous oxide, which are very, very strong greenhouse gases, and those are counted in the inventories. Um, the carbon is generally not... By preventing forest growing, you're impeding the carbon sequestration. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, if you if you can reforest an area, you'll get increased carbon sequestration and you'll generally get a lot more carbon in any old forest than, than you will get in a pasture. There's a couple of exceptions to this and the cattle industry likes to talk about the exceptions, but by and large, large forest sequesters a lot more carbon than grassland. Does livestock farming benefit the local subsistence farmers or does it benefit an export market or does it benefit local, um, rich local people? Who is the main beneficiary of all this livestock farming? It definitely benefits 
the people that have got the animals, but it doesn't benefit anybody else. <laughs> and this is this is the problem when you when you when you give somebody you know, cows or goats or whatever, and some charities still do this. I took my money out of Oxfam some time ago. I used to be a, a regular donor to Oxfam, and I emailed. I had phone calls. I tried my little best to stop Oxfam from giving Africa goats, <laughs> goats and cattle. They don't actually do very much of this, but they advertise it as if it's a big deal. And it's entirely counterproductive. And, and just the image of them doing it is, is bizarre. The ignorance is just profound that they would even think that this was good advertising. Anyway, so I stopped giving money to Oxfam as, as a result of their, their ridiculous campaign. So what happens when you give a goat to, to somebody in Kenya, for example, or cattle, the person who gets the goat, it's got a good deal. They can sell some milk at certain times, but their goat goes and grazes everybody's crop stubble. And that, that's what causes erosion and they lose topsoil and they lose crop productivity. But the person with the goat, yeah, they're on a winner. They've got a goat. Um, and the person with the, the cow is on a winner because they've got a cow, and cows are very valuable in status terms and when you want to sell them. Okay? But everybody else suffers as a result of this. Sort of the, the analogy in Australia might be giving poor people V8 utes to drive. And, yeah, they've got a V8 ute, but they stay poor for giving it petrol. <laughs> And the people in Africa with the cattle stay poor because they've got to feed the cattle. So it's a, it's a ridiculous thing to do. Now, <laughs> there are definitely some areas of Africa, some areas of lots of places, where things don't grow very well and where the only possible thing you can do is to run animals if you want to live there. But they're a small minority. You, you, see, you see them more... Uh, they are more shown than they are representative of an area. So in those areas, the people that say, oh, we need, live, we need livestock because of these poor areas, well, okay, that's the poor areas. But if you look at somewhere like Nigeria with 150 million people in a fairly small area of land, their livestock provide bugger all and they feed 150 million people on a very small area of land and they do it with plants. Plenty of places in Africa... You can feed people and you don't need cattle and cattle just cause a problem. They do not help the situation, even though they might help the person who's got the cattle. What about the claims that cattle return nutrients to the soil via their manure? Like do do African soils desperately need that manure or do African households need it for a cooking fuel? What would happen if that manure wasn't any longer available? Cattle don't bring any nutrients into the equation. You just think about it. If you think of it about a farming system as a closed system, what do cattle do? They eat, they eat grass and they produce feces. That's not producing nutrients. That's just moving them around. They don't bring any nutrients anywhere. They change the bioavailability of some nutrients, but they don't add anything to the system. And if you, ta- if you remove that animal for slaughter... There's a net loss to the system of nutrients via the carcass. While the animal is on the land, the animal doesn't bring anything to the land. It moves stuff around, but it doesn't bring anything. If you want to bring stuff, you do what Australian farmers do. You you buy fertiliser and you put it on. 
You buy manure from someone else and you put it on. You buy it from a factory farm and you put it on. That's bringing nutrients onto your property. Having cattle on your property, shifting it around, that's not the same thing. So what about the need for manure as a cooking fuel in, in poor households? It's true, definitely true, that poor households use um, manure as a cooking fuel and their children die as a result. This stuff is horrible. It's, wor- it, it's as bad or worse than burning wood. Right? Yeah, burning wood around the planet kills about half a million children every single year. You're talking right. about respiratory illnesses? Absolutely, yes. When you cook... When you start a fire inside a house and you don't have proper ventilation, even if you do have good ventilation, if you you don't have proper ventilation, your kids from time to time will get sick, they will get infections, and if you haven't got a good medical system, they will die. And as I said, we're talking half a million children a year. So we don't actually need people to be using these as cooking fuels. We need electricity in Africa. We need vast amounts of electricity in Africa. We don't need burning cow dung. If you think about what's happening when you're burning cow dung, you're taking whatever nutrients are in that dung and you're pissing them up the chimney. I mean, that's even the worst possible thing you can do with it. What's the best thing you can do with manure? (laughs) Well, leave it where it is. You know, if if you've got... um, manure on your land from cattle, the best thing you can do is to use it. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it as fertiliser. It's perfectly good fertiliser. The worst thing you can do with it is to burn it in a fireplace and kill your kids. You said before that it's just moving it around. It is just moving it around, but it's better to keep it in place than just to lose it. (laughs) It does change the bioavailability of some nutrients. That's true. But it doesn't bring any nutrients. But you don't want to lose it. Now, just to back up what you said about Oxfam and its livestock programs, what was their response? Because they must hear this criticism all the time from a lot of quarters. What's, what's their response and how do they justify it? Well, I, I don't think they do hear it from a lot of quarters. I don't think it's just me, but I, it's certainly not a lot of quarters. They run this as an advertising campaign because they think it works. People like to donate money to these, you know, give a go to Africa appeals and they think that it worked. What they also told me is that they don't actually give many goats to Africa. <laughs> so it's not a large part of their activities. And many parts of their activities are excellent. I mean, there's plenty of charities in the world that don't do this sort of stuff. Why on earth would you advertise it and lead people on? And it just perpetuates a notion that this livestock is good for the country and it isn't. It's not good for Australia, it's not good for Africa, it's not good for anywhere. It's a drain. Some friend of mine described it, it it's the anchor chain that is hanging around the necks of poor Africans, feeding their cattle, putting petrol in a V8 ute. I mean, it's the same sort of garbage. Now you also suggest that, that China is going the same way as Africa in terms of its livestock overgrazing. Ah, yeah, but China's worked it out. <laughs> Are they solving it? Are they fixing Yeah, they're solving it by restricting the numbers of cattle. The Chinese during the 90s, um, the, cattle, the cattle numbers in China went up um, and then they've stabilised. They actually fell for a bit. Um, but, yeah, China has worked the stuff out. That's why they're buying land elsewhere. So, so are there deserts? That's why they, they want Australian, Australian cattle. 
um, because they haven't got you know, they're, they're awake up to the erosion problems and they're they're looking after the land. Are their deserts reducing? They're handling their desertification problems. I can't give you numbers on this, but yeah, China is quite um, sophisticated in its land management. In the 90s, um, China had a lot of flooding, big flooding. People died in large numbers from flooding. So they slashed their forestry industry basically in half and they started sourcing uh, half their timber mainly from the Scandinavian countries. So they just halved an industry overnight. Can you imagine in Australia if somebody (laughs) saw it, we're going to halve the cattle production in Australia tomorrow. wouldn't happen. No. Farmers would give you hell. Yep. But China, with a command economy, they can do this, and they do do it. So when all those people died, <laughs> because the, 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 um, the deforestation accentuated flooding and people died, they said, ah, we're going to stop this, so they slashed their forestry business overnight. They've done the same sorts of things when, when they ran into cattle um, grazing problems, so in the late 90s. Um, so, yeah, when China has a problem, it does recognise it and it does something about it. Did you miss the latest episode of your favourite 3CR show? Visit 3CR's new improved website. Now you can listen to the latest episode of almost every 3CR show with one click, including music, arts, community languages, current affairs and more. No need to podcast, no need to download. Visit 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. Then go to your favourite programs page to listen. You're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. And we've just heard from Geoffrey Russell speaking about livestock-induced poverty in rural Africa. Now, my very first interview here on Freedom of Species was with Jared Wedderburn Bishop back in September 2012. Jared is the Executive Director of the World Preservation Foundation and he played a really key role in the development of Beyond Zero Emissions Land Use Plan. Now, in that interview, Jared spoke of farming initiatives in Africa to break the dependency on livestock. Let me take you back now to the part of the interview where I asked Jared about whether we should be expecting Africa to reduce its livestock population. For them, livestock might be a, a vital source of food and some would say a vital source of protein. So could yeah, we be look, imposing that, our values and our responsibility, seeing we cause climate change, yeah. we're imposing them on, on the developing world? Yeah, look, that, that argument's actually been exposed. Um, it used to be that um, you know, a farmer would have a few cattle so that he had uh, one or two to give away as a dowry when his daughter was married, that sort of thing. Um, and, it was, and because they don't own the land, uh, if they have uh, money tied up in cows, that's their capital. You know, that's the arguments that are used. However, however, what happens and what we've seen in Africa in the last 10 years is you get these year upon year upon year of drought. And over there they don't have drought relief where they can truck their cattle to another property like we do in Australia. Um, the, the cattle just die. And what happens, of course, is that they eat everything possible before they die. So 
you, you look at a lot of uh, you look at a lot of pictures of Africa, and the rangelands, the, the the common properties, are devoid of vegetation in these droughts because they've been picked over so much by the cattle. And what happens when cattle die? I mean, there goes your your uh, you know your dowry for your daughter. So what's their alternative if if well, there's well, a the drought? Alternative, the alternative is actually root crops. <laughs> there, there's pro there's a lot of programs doing uh, fixing it up now, and the, and there's. Um, so the root crops require less water than the livestock do? Is absolutely. That... They require, uh, I think it's about one two hundredth of the water. Yeah, there's a program by the World Food Program. They began this uh, Kenya Hunger Halt program um, about six years ago. And uh, that was as a result of this very thing happening, all the livestock dying and, and people in deep strife. The, the Hunger Halt program came in it negotiated land for people and it drilled holes, uh, you know, water uh, wells, and they taught the people how to grow. Uh, there's mostly root crops because they're incredibly water efficient. And what that happened, that those people who are on that program are now thriving. They have far fewer cattle, but they are thriving. The nutrition? Yes, absolutely. This business that we need meat for nutrition is absolute bunkum. Um, you know, it's, it's the micronutrients that we're drastically lacking, and all the micronutrients come from plant foods. But even in Kenya, for example, even the Maasai, who they're traditional herders. They're like, no, no, we've always done it this way. We've always been herders. That's, it. That's all we know. Those people are converting to this hunger halt program and growing crops, and they're thriving. So these traditions can be overturned, um, you know, very quickly when they have to be. You're tuned to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio and that last track was Prince with Little Red Corvette. Prior to that, you heard from Gerard Wedderburn Bishop of the World Preservation Foundation and also of Beyond Zero Emissions. There was a news story circulating widely in the media recently. It was about a study out of Oxford University that found that a vegan diet, if adopted globally, would see a 70% decrease in greenhouse gas emissions by the year 2050. It also found that 8 million deaths would be avoided and that healthcare savings would be in the trillions of dollars. That's all a pretty big deal in my books. Anyway, this, the study is entitled Analysis and Valuation of the Health and Climate Change Co-Benefits of Dietary Change. And it was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences just in March this year. It was all a little bit exciting for me. So I contacted the lead author, Dr. Marco Springman. Marco is a research fellow at the Oxford Martin Program on the Future of Food at Oxford Uni. We wanted to analyze what could be the environmental, climate change and economic impacts of moving towards more plant-based diets. Um, so for that, we looked at uh, different dietary scenarios. One is uh, sort of what experts expect the diets to be in 2050 and um, three alternative scenarios. One uh, looked at dietary guidelines that are globally recommended 
and then also one vegetarian and one vegan diet that both of which um, um, are in line with those dietary guidelines, but they would uh, include more uh, a greater portion of fruits and vegetables and less uh, less meat, obviously. I should probably say uh, give a little bit of motivation for for that whole study. So um, a lot of people have looked into uh, the environmental impacts of diets and with good reason. I, more than a quarter of all greenhouse gas emissions um, are due to the uh, food system. So what we eat has a great impact on climate change. At the same time, imbalanced diets such as diets low, low in fruits and vegetables and high in red meat are responsible for the greatest health burden globally and in most regions. So looking at those both issues combined and for uh, most world regions was really uh, what we felt was an important issue to tackle. And what we found was that a global switch to diets that rely less on red meat and more on fruits and vegetables could uh, lead to about five to eight million lives saved in 2050, reduce greenhouse gas emissions by more than two thirds and lead to healthcare related savings and avoided climate damages of uh, about 1.5 trillion. And what were the figures that you used for livestock greenhouse gas emissions? Uh, we used a comprehensive uh, so-called meta-analysis that basically uh, um, combined a lot of uh, um, single um, estimates together. So um, that was a study that had been previously done. Um, are you interested in, in the specific numbers? <laughs> well, yeah, I am because I heard you say that a quarter of the world's greenhouse gas emissions come from the food production system. Which I, which I find interesting because there's a lot of figures around at the moment saying that almost half of the world's greenhouse gas emissions come from livestock. Okay, sure. Yeah, we, so we use something that is called life cycle analysis that basically tracks uh, specific goods from when they are produced uh, to, to the con um, all the way through the consumption uh, to the consumption point. And uh, what we didn't include, what some of the studies that came out uh, like just a couple of weeks ago uh, included to a greater extent were uh, changes in land use. So um, basically, in a sense, our estimates are an underestimate because they don't include, uh, you know, all the um, forests cleared for uh, growing soybean uh, fed to livestock. The reason we didn't include that it, it, is that it's hard to get a um, consistent estimate of those. And it's not so clear how much you, sh you should ascribe to specific food commodities. I mean, it's clear that uh, a lot of forests are cleared to produce some grains that are later fed to livestock. But do you ascribe that to livestock only in the particular region or livestock in general? So there are some areas there where that would still benefit from some discussion and um, reports that came out lately, for example, from the World Resources um, Institute that you might have seen, um, they attribute um, land use change, marginal land use change to all uh, uh, to to the food commodity in general, and they found much higher uh, greenhouse gas emissions than we used, for example. So uh, that is a very welcome study because they sort of put the finger at 
what people have been done before, which which was treat land use as a bit of a separate issue, but surely it should be considered in a more uh, in, uh, integrated way. You're not debating the other figures that exist. It just means that your results are very, very conservative. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there are basically three uh, three ways of accounting for land use. One is not to account for it, so to say, or to say, well, uh, you got to look at it uh, separately. One is to ascribe it to specific regions. Uh, and recently we have done some studies on, on that uh, with that methodology. And third is to attribute any land use to uh, to the commodity in general. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I don't dis dispute any of those uh, methods. There are different ways of looking at things and in a way they are very complementary. So, um, I mean, I guess what is important to take away is that no matter which methodology you use, actually the percentage reductions are fairly similar because you always find that the food system is responsible for a great chunk of total emissions. And then if you analyze dietary changes, that would take a percentage out of those, right? Um, and also what those other studies that came out recently found is that a shift to uh, less meaty diets towards more plant-based diets would reduce greenhouse gas emissions by roughly the same percentages that we found. So I guess we, we tell pretty much the same story, just with slightly different uh, methodologies. So I understand that there was big differences in your comparison of the four different dietary options. What were these regional differences and why did, did they exist? Well, globally, we found that uh, half of the health benefits would be due to reduced red meat consumption, and the other half would be due to a combination of uh, lower weight levels that would be associated with cutting excessive um, caloric consumption, and the other half uh, due to more fruit and vegetables. But uh, regionally, we find that, what is, for example, uh, reductions in red meat uh, consumption would be most important or lead to the greatest health benefit, especially in Western countries <clears throat> uh, such as Australia, but also in uh, East Asia such as China and, um, and in Latin America, whereas increasing fruit and vegetable consumption would be most important in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, reducing calorie intake would be very important also in Western uh, countries, but also in, Eastern, in the Eastern Mediterranean region and Latin America. Uh, and the reasons for those uh, findings are that there are basically there are different imbalances uh, of diets in those regions. For example, in uh, both in Western uh, countries, but in East Asia, red meat consumption is fairly high. So um, cutting down on that would result in a big uh, health benefit. Uh, on the other hand, fruit and vegetable consumption is fairly low in South Asia, uh, in, in, in India, for example, but also very low in Sub-Saharan Africa. So increasing that to just the recommended levels uh, would result in a, in a big health gain. Is there a causal relationship between the reduced global health status and climate change? Or is it, are they simply parallel outcomes that result from excessive meat consumption? Yeah, I guess the meat issue is the perfect example where health benefits and environmental benefits go hand in hand. 
Uh, I mean, it has been known for a long time that red and processed meat is very detrimental for health, and it has been now known for, for a couple of years that it's also very greenhouse gas intensive. So that's an easy one. But um, in some instances, um, it can also go the other way. For example, sugar uh, is very low in greenhouse gas emissions, but uh, it's fairly detrimental for health. So um, sometimes it's a complex uh, question, but I would say in general, if you look at sort of the whole makeup of a diet, then diets that are high in uh, meat products, uh, high in animal products that are generally seen as unhealthy, they would also generally be high in greenhouse gas emissions. So in fairly general terms, you, you can make that association that high greenhouse gas diets are usually also uh, um, unhealthier diets, uh, with some exceptions, of course. I guess what I'm getting at is that does a population that is unhealthy, does that create a greater climate change impact? Well, it always me, uh, depends on what you mean by unhealthy. So, um, as I say, if a population has more animal products in their diets that would uh, generally exactly lead to that, a more unhealthy population and a bigger greenhouse gas uh, impact. But also if uh, a population just eats too much, then uh, in, a, in a sense, all this overconsumption you you can term you can see as as waste so to say right people wouldn't need to eat that yes yet yet it's eaten and it's produced so that creates uh, additional food production that would not be needed uh, um, per se yeah most of the time you 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 can make that argument of course there are still regions at the moment where hunger is also a persistent problem in particular in sub-Saharan Africa and in parts of South Asia. Um, so their populations are not terribly healthy, uh, and they, but they do have a low <laughs> um, environmental impact uh, through their diets because they just don't eat very much. Uh, so also there, it's usually a, a complex question, but surely we're moving uh, towards a picture where um, unhealthy means basically too much of the wrong things, uh, and that usually means high environmental impacts. Was there anything in the results that you were surprised by? Yeah, I was a bit surprised by uh, when we put a dollar value on those numbers to see that the health impacts came out as uh, uh, as being much more important than the environmental benefits. I mean, we wanted to make them comparable in some way, in some way and surely it's always a complex question to put dollar values on specific things. Um, but the fact that we found that if you took into account something that is called the value of statistical life to value the health benefits, that we found uh, social health benefits that outnumber the environmental ones by one order of magnitude. For example, the um, uh, economic benefits of avoided uh, climate damages, they reach about one trillion globally in the uh, uh, in the plant-based diet, whereas the uh, value that societies would describe to reduce mortality would reach about 30 trillion. So uh, this is a big difference, and that really highlights that um, what is very important in uh, in that discussion of having a lower environmental impact is also the the basically health benefit that comes attached to that. 
Um, and I guess making this argument that it's very much connected, uh, what, what, that what we eat has a uh, big impact, not only on the environment, but also on health and the other way around. It's unlikely that only technological fixes can deliver the kinds of emissions reduction that would be needed to avert uh, global warming. But uh, some way of moving towards more plant-based diets uh, um, would surely be needed. Do you know if there's been any take-up of the study in government policy yet? The Danes are thinking of taxing red meat in their effort to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And I'm wondering if your study played a part in this. Oh, I think it would be a bit of a stretch to say that, uh, that the Danes had planned that for some time, I think. Uh, also, there are other plans of taxing uh, sugary drinks in Mexico, for example, and in uh, parts of California, I think. Um, so th those are discussions that are there at the moment. They are mostly sort of um, pushed due to health concerns. So um, I guess what our study now um, gives is that people can uh, can motivate such approaches both uh, on health and in, on environmental grounds. Um, and we surely hope that uh, such initiatives like the Danish initiative would uh, now have a, a bit more of a backup to say, well, here are actually the numbers. Um, that uh, that you you could consult to see if it makes sense to implement uh, such a policy. Um, what is generally an important thing is exactly those population-based approaches. Um, a lot of research has been done at what, how do people actually change diets? So um, we wanted to first put out there, okay, does it make sense to talk about dietary change? And we show, yes, it does. And now the next question obviously needs to be, how do we get there? And um, proposals such as uh, um, health and or environmentally motivated taxes surely play a big role because they would affect the whole population and the whole population would then switch diets to, to some degree. I have to ask you, are you vegan? <laughs> yes, I am. Um, I'm, I'm, re I'm vegan for health reasons, though, I have to say. Um, so when I first became aware of the, of the research that informs um, my research, I thought it would be a bit inconsistent to eat otherwise. Um, though I should say uh, the representation on, on that paper is fairly, uh, fairly broad. So um, we have four authors, co-authors on the paper. One is vegan, uh, one is vegetarian and two are meat eaters. So I guess we sort of have a broad, uh, uh, yeah, a broad variety of diets. Uh, so I, and in a way, that's always a tricky question, right? Uh, I mean, people can, of course, say, oh, uh, your personal diet uh, makes you biased. But then if you wouldn't act on the findings you have, then uh, that would also be inconsistent, right? So it's always <laughs> a, a tricky question to answer. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. You're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio. And you've just been hearing from Dr. Marco Springman from the University of Oxford, 
talking about his recent study which looked at the climate change co-benefits of dietary change. Dr Michael Greger is an author, public speaker and general practitioner specialising in clinical nutrition. He's an outspoken advocate for plant-based diets and is also the public health director at the Humane Society of the United States. The recording that I'm about to play to you is part of a presentation he made in September last year about diet and climate change. Well, the same foods that create the most greenhouse gases appear to be the same foods that are contributing to many of our chronic diseases. Meat, fish, eggs, and dairy were found to have the greatest environmental impact, whereas grains, beans, fruits, and vegetables had the least impact. And not only did the foods with the heaviest environmental impact tend to have the lower nutritional quality, but also higher price per pound. The European Commission, the governing body of the European Union, commissioned a study on what individuals can do to help the climate. In terms of transport, if Europeans started driving electric cars, it could prevent as much as 174 million tons of carbon from getting released. Uh, we could also turn out the thermostat a bit, maybe put on a sweater. But the most powerful thing people can do, shift to a meat-free diet. What we eat may have more of an impact on global warming than on what we drive. Uh, even just cutting out animal protein intake one day of the week could have a powerful effect. So even just like meatless Mondays may beat out working from home all week and not commuting. And a strictly plant-based diet may be better still, responsible for only about half the greenhouse gas emissions. Overall, studies have suggested that moderate dietary changes are not enough to reduce impacts from food consumption drastically. Changes to healthier diets without significant meat and dairy intake reductions may only result in rather minor reductions of environmental impacts. This is because the average fossil energy input for animal protein production systems is like 25 calories of fossil energy input for every one calorie produced, more than 11 times greater than for grain protein production, for example, which is down around 2 to 1. Researchers in Italy compared seven different diets to see which one was environmentally friendliest. They compared a conventional omnivorous diet adhering to dietary guidelines to an organic omnivorous diet, conventional vegetarian, organic vegetarian, conventional vegan, and organic vegan to what the average person actually eats. For each dietary pattern, they looked at carcinogens, air pollution, climate change, effects on the ozone layer, the ecosystem, acid rain, and land, mineral, and fossil fuel use. Now, if they were eating a healthier diet, conforming to the dietary recommendations, the environmental impact would be significantly less. An organic omnivorous diet would be better, similar to a vegetarian diet of conventional foods, beaten out by an organic vegetarian diet, conventional vegan, and organic vegan diet. The Commission report described the barriers to animal product reduction, largely lack of knowledge, ingrained habits, and culinary cultures. Uh, proposed policy measures include meat or animal protein taxes, uh, educational campaigns, and putting the greenhouse gas emissions info right on food labels. Climate change mitigation is expensive. 
A global transition to even just a low-meat diet, as recommended for health reasons, could reduce these mitigation costs. A healthier low-meat diet would cut the cost of mitigating climate change from about 1% of GDP by more than half. A no-meat diet could cut two-thirds of the cost, and a no-animal product diet could cut the cost 80%. But many aren't aware of the cow in the room. It seems that very few people are aware that the livestock sector is one of the largest contributors to greenhouse gas emissions, but that's changing. Uh, the UK's National Health Service is taking a leading role in reducing carbon emissions. Patients, visitors, and staff can look forward to healthy, low-carbon menus with much less meat, dairy, and eggs. For evidence shows that you know, as far as the climate is concerned, meat is heat. The Swedish government recently amended their dietary recommendations to encourage citizens to eat less meat. Even if we seek only to achieve the conservative objective of you know, avoiding further long-term increases in greenhouse gas emissions from livestock, we are still led to rather radical recommendations, such as cutting current consumption levels in half in affluent countries, an unlikely outcome if there were no direct rewards to citizens for doing so. Fortunately, there are such rewards, or important health benefits. By helping the planet, we can help ourselves. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival features an array of Australian, international, environmental and music documentaries direct from the likes of the South by Southwest Film Festival in Texas. Playing at Howler Art Space in Brunswick from July 9th to the 11th, tickets are on sale now at Moshtix and Howler. For more information, visit mdff.org.au. A 3CR supporter. The global march to close all slaughterhouses is taking place on Saturday, June the 4th. That's going to include events in Sydney and Melbourne. There's a tattoo flash day taking place in Ascot Vale, Melbourne, on Sunday, June the 5th. That's to raise funds for Sea Shepherd Melbourne, and it's going to be featuring tattoo artists from all over Australia. So you can come on down and get yourself a flash tattoo. Details of those events are on their respective Facebook pages and they will also be on our Facebook page. That's all I've got for you today. Thanks very much to Geoffrey Russell, Jared Wedderburn Bishop, Marco Springman and also to Michael Greger. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter and you can contact us by email info at freedomofspecies.org. I'm going to leave you with a couple of tracks from Prince, kind of a belated thank you to not only an amazing musician but a vegan and an animal advocate. See you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.